Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 66, Matisse in the Studio, recorded on April 10th, 2017. My name is Julie Fayfan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Shoebalzer. Hi, Mom. Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm good. Everybody's in a good mood because today was suddenly warm. I know. I was going to say, the weather, the weather, because spring has sprung and it finally feels like happiness. Although we are going to the Red Sox game on Friday and I looked at the weather and it's going to be 39 at yes, night. Yes. So bundle up. Come so on. It's like, hardy, that's terrible. Be a hardy New Englander. Oh, God. Baseball in 39 degree weather does not sound fun to me. Uh, to me, it's a lot better than sitting in the broiling sun and it's 90. Fair enough. I'll bring a blanket. It'll be okay. A blanket? 39 degrees for like three hours is very cold. If you're dressed correctly. What does correctly mean in an Arctic parka? I mean, that's a thing, which is like it's fine for 10 minutes, but sitting for that long? I mean, I the suppose secret? the seats at Fenway yeah. are so small, you're right up against somebody that's anyway. Right. We'll huddle Body heat. together. We'll huddle together. Huddle together for warmth. Anyway, uh, so today, although it was a beautiful day, I was cooped up inside for most of the day um, in an art studio at the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston, the MFA, and uh, I don't mean cooped up, I guess. I mean, I was happily there, although it has these high windows all around, which you think is awesome, until the sun starts beating in, and then you think, oh, this is like being an orchid in a greenhouse, except that I'm not an orchid, and it's hot. Wait a minute, two seconds ago you were complaining about being cold. Oh, I'll complain about anything. I'll complain if it's cold, I'll complain if it's hot, I'll complain if it's dry, I'll complain if it's wet. I just, I, I enjoy the sport of complaining. I'm getting the theme. There you go. So, um, but I've been taking this art class. Today was a second session. Uh, it's called Acrylic Expressionism. Um, I am very interested in expressionism as an art movement. It is, so just like brief art history here for anybody who, who cares to go down this path with me. Uh, basically, expressionism uh, came out of some of impressionism. So impressionism, uh, if you're thinking about famous artists Van Gogh, Monet, there are people who took a realistic subject but then interpreted it with their own color palette, brush strokes. It was sort of the beginning of it not being photographic realism, but really uh, your impression, these clever names, impressionism, um, of what they thought. And then expressionism was taking it sort of a step further. And it was not just uh, your impression of what you're seeing, but then it was just expressing your feelings, which really started to leap into a lot of abstract work. Although it is a misconception to say that expressionism has to be abstract. Expressionism can actually be based in realism. Um, one of the things that I remember surprised me so much is looking at uh, Wilhelm de Kooning's, I think I just like saying Wilhelm de Kooning. Um, some of the thing, one of the things that surprised me about looking at some of his work was it's so very monstrous, grotesque. Those are words I think you can safely say to describe his figural work. And yet... I have looked at sketches and pictures of models that he was working from, and you think, this is based on a model? This is based on multiple sketches? And the answer is yes, it was. And all those accidental marks are actually deeply, deeply purposeful. 
So uh, I think the way that the teacher described it, which I think is uh, a, cl a clear way to describe it, is that it's a subjective emotional response. That's what expressionism is. So, I mean, to a certain, to a certain extent, I think you could actually say all art is expressionism because it is all like, right, your subjective emotional response, but who knows? I mean, now we're getting into some meta, meta, whatever. But the th so there was a kid in the class who said something interesting. Um, when she was giving us a tour through the museum's collection, and here's where I'm going to be a total snob, and I'm sorry, and I apologize, and this might be a sorry, not sorry moment, but because I happen to have had the good fortune of seeing an absolutely spectacular, out of this world, abstract expressionism exhibit at MoMA within recent memory, like within the last five to seven years, looking at the three or four paintings in the MFA's collection that count as expressionism was kind of like, mwah, 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 which I, is terrible. And I recognize that. But I just, I did have a moment when we were standing in front of what are, are what are completely gorgeous, beautiful paintings. And I was like, eh, I've seen better. <laughs> this is a theme with you. What a jerk. What a jerk. But anyway, the thing that the student said that I thought was interesting was he said, um, we were looking at this painting and he said, so you're giving over a lot of the painting to chance. Huh. And I didn't agree with the teacher's response to it where she was just like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, mm, I don't feel like that's true. I feel like. Wait, did you say this or just No, think I it? didn't say this. I'm not you the biggest jerk it. in the world. No, but it's oh, a discussion. Let me be the person in the first class who's like, teacher, I think you're wrong. Yeah, I, I'm going to be that asshole. Anyway, so I uh, so I was thinking in my brain, though, the whole time I was like, you know, it's one of those weird things when people say, so you're leaving a lot to chance because you're not, I mean, you are and you aren't. Like, we're talking about painters who trained, who understood color, who understood their materials, who made hundreds and hundreds of paintings, who spent hundreds and hundreds of hours, who uh, thought about composition, who you know, we're trying and experimenting things. So is there chance in it? Sure. But it's not like these were accidental masterpieces, just like the example I gave about de Kooning and his hundreds of sketches, you know. It is actually purposeful embracing of things that happen and marks that may seem uh, unrealistic but are purposeful I don't know it, it I think it's sort of a bigger question actually it made me think a lot of so I think I mentioned I can't remember if I mentioned this on the last podcast or not but I'm I'm doing the 100 day project which oh, is yeah. this, which is this project where you're supposed to for 100 days do something creative and everybody has really interesting projects that they're not interesting. Everybody, there are so many stimulating, fascinating, clever projects out there. Um, everything from leaving positive affirmations in public places to handwriting to drawing to sewing. There's somebody who's sewing 100 t-shirt pockets. What? I know. I was like, what? But anyway, each pocket is different. And, like, there's one today that was, like, notebook paper. Yeah. And just just interesting, just not interesting, just a, a wide variety of things. If People... someone wants to see these, they're all on Instagram, right? With yeah. Hashtag, what's the 100 hashtag? 100 Day Project. 100 Day Project. And then each person has an individual hashtag for their project so that you can see all 100 of whatever they're doing. So, like, mine is 100 Days of 15-Minute Balls or Faces. Okay. Um... 
And I'm not surprised. Well, there you go. So, but that's the thing, which is you, you pick something that you think here's, I think it's like this. If you're going to sustain something for a hundred days, it has to be something that you're interested in. It has to be something that's easy, easily accomplishable when you're sick, when you're traveling, when you're busy, when whatever. And it has to be something, you know, that you are going to be excited to do and that you're going to be excited to post pictures of on Instagram. For instance, like I actually thought about doing a hundred days in my Bujo because I love my bullet journal. It's like my best friend now and I don't need anybody else. I just, me and my Bujo are going to be happy forever. I feel left out. I'm sorry. You are not as good as my bullet journal. But the thing is, I was like, I don't want to post 100 pictures of my bullet journal. Like, it's just not that, like, it's fun for me, but I don't think people seeing my endless list making is exciting. And part of the thing that makes a bullet journal fun for me is that it doesn't have to be camera ready. It's not pretty. It's sort of. By the way, these 100 things. Yeah. Each one is supposed to be done in 15 minutes, right? No. No. That's a limit I put on. Oh, I see. So your so face, reason... each of your hundred faces has to be done in a hundred minutes. Can no, be it has any... to be done in has I mean, to be done in fifteen me. minutes. Yeah, it can be any medium. Yeah, can be any anything like that. Yeah, but just it has to be a face that you made start to finish fifteen minutes. That's right. And the reason again I put the fifteen minute limit on myself is because I thought that's the only because what I've been doing is I've been recording a video of it start to finish and hyperlapse. So it takes me probably like five minutes to get set up, 15 minutes to do it, then another 10 minutes to edit it. So it's a half an hour commitment every day. Yeah, that's enough. That's enough. And the thing is, I also think I 15 minutes is enough time to get something done, but not so much that you can get lost in meandering through thought. And, you know, the point is just to do. So there are people, I'm sure, who are spending hours every day. I just can't. I just can't. 15 minutes is a good commitment. So that's what I'm doing. Oh, anyway, this wandering long conversation. Anyway, so the way that I – the reason that I thought of this is because I did these four faces over four days that were monoprinted. And they look very similar, partially because the last three were all done with the same paper masks that I used to create the prints. Um, but they all look incredibly similar, but I was felt personally most in control of the process and understanding what the result was going to be at each layer and being able to dictate what was happening as opposed to the result being something of an accident on the fourth try. And yet when you look back at the prints, I don't think that you could tell which was the fourth and which was the first, but for me, it was important to go through that process of discovering, um, you know, what was happening uh, and, and to really know that I was in control of it. And so that's the thing when he said, oh, you're just leaving a lot up to chance. I was like, well, okay, maybe if it was a one-off, but when you see multiple iterations, a series, somebody attempting something over and over, it's not a one-off. That's an attempt to grab control of whatever the question is that you're grappling with, you know? So that, that it's sort of life is all interrelated, right? Things that people say trigger other things in other parts. Anyway, so in class, the first class, I didn't bring any of my own stuff because the, so, the said, you know, things will be supplied. And I hated it. 
Because? Because the brushes were those crappy, you know, those really crappy classroom brushes that, like, don't come to a point, that aren't, like, the right size that you're looking for, that aren't flexible, that are a mess, that leave bristles everywhere, the... You know, the paint is all, like, a mixture of, like, leftover weird classroom paint. So, it's, like, uh, not the right colors, not enough of this. Like, it's the reject of that. It's just sort of all over the place. Not enough pigment. Not enough pigment. Not enough this. da 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 da, da You know, and then she also had given us canvas boards, which were so small that I had painted two by the time most people were, like, putting their paint out. You know, and, and actually she was very nice, the teacher. She said, let me see what I can do about getting you a canvas. And then she pulled out some stretcher bars and a piece of muslin and we stretched a canvas. And actually it was my first time working on a muslin canvas as opposed to a canvas canvas. And it takes the paint differently and responds differently and I enjoyed it. Um, but today was a second class and I brought my own paint and my own brushes. Uh, and I was a happy girl. To be able to do that. And it's interesting and you, to be, you weren't the only one, right? And I wasn't other, the only one, obviously. Other people. other people feel that way too. It's a, this is, it's hard to call this a class. This is a class in the sense of classical art education, which is to say you show up, you paint some stuff, the teacher walks around and gives you critique. There is no, now we do this, now we do that, now we do this. I was hoping for something that was going to be a little more structured and I came back from the first class fairly disappointed in the fact that there was no real instruction. But then I decided to change my attitude. What a good idea! Well, this is the great argument that I have about a lot of things, which is if you, you determine how good or bad most experiences in your life are, based on your attitude on it. So there are people who go through terrible things and yet remain positive about other people, about human, you know, the human race, about their lives, about themselves. And, and that is, you know, attitude. So I was like, I need to check my attitude and come back to class and say, what are the things that I can learn and take away from this within the parameters and you know I hate being needy and I my the only thing I ever want to do in a class is be in the back and have nobody notice me that is my main goal but I just decided the only way that I'm going to get anything out of this class because I am further along than some of the other students I think the teacher was really just letting me do what I wanted and instead I decided to be that student and just be like Hello, I would like an opinion. Hello, do you have some feedback for me? Hey, Rhea, can you uh, tell me what you think of this? Not because I have to take her opinion or I need someone to tell me what to do, but because here she is. She's an accomplished artist. She's has, she has work in museums. She's, you know, been teaching at the uh, MFA for 12 years. Like, why am I not taking advantage of that resource to at least hear her opinion? I like that point. By the way, weren't they supposed to take you into the galleries each week before class? So, yeah, that was one of the reasons I wanted to take this class is because the description says, like, you know, based on, like, stuff you see in the galleries and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, awesome. That's so exciting. So they she did take us into the galleries the first day, but that was it. That was it. So today I was like, you know what? This is a five-hour class. It goes from 10.15 in the morning until 3.15 in the afternoon. And you can take lunch whenever. And I was like, you know what? I'm going into the Matisse in the studio exhibit. I had already seen it once, but I was like, this is my time. I don't care that it's during class. I have plenty of time to paint at home. I don't need to paint here. I'm going to, during lunch, go and see that exhibit again. And I did. 
And this I'm really glad that I did. Into the expectation, back to the expectations. This totally gets us back to the expectations issue. You had seen it and you reported back to me that you're disappointed. And then I saw it last Friday. And because you had told me you were disappointed, I didn't have great expectations for it. I didn't love it, but I understood what they were doing. So why don't you describe what they have there and then we can talk about it. Well, first, let me describe my expectations. So, I love Matisse. He is one of my top five artists without even having to think about it. I think his work is brilliant. I think the work from many of his periods is brilliant. I'm fascinated by the way that he finds simplicity, that he moves paint, that he creates color fields. Like, I just think he's a master. So... I have seen several different Matisse exhibits in my life. I have seen a lot of Matisse. I've been lucky enough to see a lot of Matisse originals, uh, great pieces at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So I went to the opening night of this exhibit, Matisse in the studio, ready to be blown away, ready to just have my like world rocked. And based on the name of the exhibit, Matisse in the studio, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so much about like Matisse's process. It'll be like, um, I remembered in the cutout exhibit of Matisse, there had been wonderful video of him in the studio working on the cutouts. You got to see, um, you know, swatches of painted papers. And I was like, this is going to be an artist's dream. I am so excited. So I walked down the stairs into the dark with the big lit up right sign the pure white matisse in the studio my heart was thumping my palms were sweaty i was wearing high heels so i was not very comfortable going down all those stairs and then i walked through the doors and was deeply disappointed by what i saw just very underwhelming paintings. And I was like, what? I mean, first of all, they're like dinky sized for museums. Most museum work is very large scale. And these were like dinky and not particularly interesting or what I think of as Matisse. But I was like, okay, relax. It's just the first room. So I moved on and I was like, what, what, what? And every painting, I mean, I have my camera at the ready and I'm like, eh, I don't want to take a picture of that. Eh. Not that's not that interesting. Eh, I don't want to take a picture of that. And you know, the people and what they're wearing to the opening is a lot more interesting than what's going on in the art, which is saying something because it's Boston and people don't dress that interestingly, even to an art opening. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but then you know, there were a couple paintings here and here, here and there that I hadn't seen that I found interesting. I also was proud of myself because there were a number of pieces that I was like oh wait I've seen that at and I named the museum and sure enough it was on loan from the museum so I was like hey I actually know my Matisse's and where to find them um but you know kind of underwhelmed there was some interesting um I love pattern that is not a surprise I wouldn't design stencils if I didn't love pattern so there was that sort of Moroccan-y room full of uh -huh. pattern that I really liked that I thought was great. I, I thought it was weird that basically these objects by unknown artists like a coffee pot or a rug were essentially given the same weight as this art. Nonetheless, I found some paintings of Matisse that I liked. I found some things that were good, you know, walked through. They had a couple cutouts. It wasn't a lot. I was kind of like, wah, wah, wah. 
And then I went to the gift shop, ready to buy, and there was nothing that I wanted. So that added to my disappointment. Um, so that was sort of my experience, and that's why I said to you, eh, underwhelmed. So then so, I read the re- review that right. which you sent me out of the Boston Globe that was, like, extolling it. And I was like, what planet is this guy well, on? And it was explaining it. The mm-hmm. point was not to have a retrospective of the greatness of Matisse. It was to show some objects that he had had that show up a lot in his art. It was to show some textiles and things. And then there's a one room that's completely filled with sort of letting you know that at one period he suddenly discovered African art and how that changed the way he sculpted and painted in important ways. And it also, I think, revealed some things about the kind of colonial attitude that many Europeans had about African art, which kind of put me off to tell you the truth, but it was, it was a different way of looking at things. And it was trying to understand uh, why some of the things that we take for granted, for example, about his sculptures were actually departures from up to then European, the European approach. And I found that content really uh, stimulating things like uh, when he saw this African sculpture, he became interested in these spaces around the sculpture and through the sculpture that were created. It was a different way of thinking about sculpture, or that the human uh, humans that were depicted didn't have to be anatomically correct; that they could have different proportions for different parts of their bodies. Uh, to project, for example, power with a, and and it, the goal of these African sculptures wasn't to be realistic. It was to convey power, magic, uh, manhood, whatever. And so they had a different purpose in a certain way. And when I started reading, I looked at some of the journals that they showed that he had taken drawings from in order to kind of work through these ideas, which, by the way, a lot of them had originally been ethnographic porn. Yeah, ethnographic porn for the day because people felt free to show naked African bodies in a way that they would never have shown naked European bodies. I think there are probably some people around who remember using National Geographic magazine in that same way. But so I did find that interesting. He and Picasso apparently shared this interest in African art. And then there were some things. I had a long conversation with the people I went to the museum with because, for example, there was a carved Chinese sign that he was very attracted to, and he had it in his home, and he moved it with him when he moved around. And they had a photograph uh, from his studio with a bunch of his art all around and this sign. And he was basically viewing the sign, the calligraphy on the sign, as 
as a design. To me, it was very jarring because even though I couldn't read the whole thing, I could read parts of it. And it, it, it reminded me of there was a period of time when they used to have movies and they would produce or not just movies, but items to create the feeling of wanting to have like Chinese characters, but they would never bother to have real Chinese characters. They would have scratches that in their minds looked like Chinese characters. Yeah, it like this, it totally reminds me of all those people who are walking around with a tattoo that says like monkey butt because they don't know Chinese when they got the tattoo. Or in in um, there are places in the world where you go and they they sell t-shirts or sweatshirts that have something in English that's supposed to be like a college, but it's a non-existent college or it's English, but it doesn't, it's not really quite right. Yes. And it, it was jarring to me to see this. And I realized that there's a certain degree in which we now look at things from another culture, art from another culture in a completely different way. Uh, we, we now don't just view it with this kind of distance. We try to be a little more educated about it or informed about it. Well, so, so this is, well, but, so the, but it gave me insight into him, into his art. I think one of the problems, I'm going to let you talk, but just one of the problems is when you first walk in the very first chamber there's a glass vase, if you remember that, mm -hmm. kind of blue-green vase. And then they have two paintings that have the vase in it. And they're attributing some mystical value to the fact that this is the actual vase. But in these paintings, the vases are not the main thing. And I wanted more about the paintings and less about the vase. And right away, it sort of sets you up to say, huh? And then the other thing is there's one large photograph at the entrance of him in his studio, which I found fascinating because you could see the details of what's in his studio. But in most of the rest of the exhibit, they had photos, but they're extremely small. And you had to sort of bend down to see them, and the light wasn't very good. So if they're going to show me his studio and talk about that this is an exhibit of his artwork in the context of his studio, then I need to see the studio. Yeah, I mean, here's what I'd say. So second viewing today, a couple things, which is one, it was, so it was less crowded, which meant mm -hmm. that I could actually read all the placards. I'm and sure really, it makes a difference. It does. Yeah. It makes a difference to get the story. So having like read the article, which talked about the intent, and I was like, wow, I didn't get any of that. So this time I went back and I was like, let me read all the placards. Um, and I understood this, the thesis of this idea that, which is Matisse saw object at, as actor and that the way that various normal objects interacted within his world told stories to him. And there was some anthropomorphizing that the curators did in terms of saying, look how this, you know, teapot chocolate mm. pot is like moving towards you its legs stretch and you were like okay um but i sort of appreciated that and started to look 
with a lens of, okay, so then Matisse is also creating sculpture and yet bringing that sculpture into his paintings as an object as important as the vase or the chocolate pot, you know? And then there was all that weird stuff about like the, uh, you know, here, here's the back of an Algerian, here's a naked Algerian Jewess, mm-hmm. you know? And you're just like, what? You know, and this is what he's based his sculpture on is this butt that we're looking at, you know? Um, so it, I found it interesting to think about where he was getting his inspiration and to think about how uh, there was one particular sketch where they were talking about how African figures made him feel that that sort of French figure of things being sort of realistic and idealized was not what he was interested in, but a sort of harsher, more plain filled P L A N E, you know, mm-hmm. um, figure. But then again, like you said, there were several things talking about how he viewed primitism, primitivism, And this idea, which I think is wrong, which is that African artists were creating art this way because they couldn't do any better. As opposed to this was the choice they were making was to streamline the figure this way. And I think they were using these figures or these masks in a different way. They had a use in daily life. They had a use in their spiritual life. Yeah, but, and I think they have, and I think so, anyway, if you look at African culture and European culture, and these are huge generalizations, but views of bodies are enormously different in those cultures. Views of women's bodies in particular, you know, what's good, what's bad, what's, you know, idealized, what's not, you know, views of death are vastly different. Views of family are vastly different. So it's no surprise that they would have different views, or obviously, of creating these things so anyway the long story short here is the next this this time through the second time through i was like okay now i'm on board with the thesis the thesis is objects but then i feel like it gets muddled because suddenly you're looking at a room full of portraits because matisse did a lot of portraits and portraits are interesting which is literally what the explanation on the sign says i swear to you well another thing is we're more exposed now to ethnographic material so for for example there's one room where it showed he loved these textiles north african textiles which were which are gorgeous yeah. which are exotic which are filled with pattern but we're used to seeing it now you go to anthropology and you can see a lot of the stuff and so we're jaded in a way that maybe he wasn't but what i what i did f- find myself thinking was in in he arranged very carefully the scene that he was painting. He would have this odalisque, this woman lying on all these rugs, and with the he had these hangings behind him, and they had some of the actual hangings, you know, textiles, tables, uh, braziers, all this stuff. And I realized, in a funny kind of way, uh, this may seem crazy, but he was doing what Instagrammers do now. They were arranging the scene to communicate it to you, this artificially perfect world. Very interesting thought when I when I looked at it in that way. He right. didn't he wasn't attempting to say, oh, this is an actual room, you know. He was creating a beautiful pattern within the frame 
of the piece of art. There's a question I have, which is Matisse, who I think is remarkably known for his simplicity of line. I think those are his works that get most talked about. And in those works, most of the time, there, there, is, there are color fields mm-hmm. rather than pattern. So I was charmed by many of the paint, intensely patterned paintings. And my first thought was, how come we never see these paintings? They're extremely busy. I think the figures in them feel immature in some way. And it may be because the pattern is so intense to have a simplified figure within it. Well, the figure is part of the pattern. There's almost not many of his, those kind of paintings. The figure is not an individual. Yes, but then I also think of there's a Kirchner painting that I love at the MFA, which is a nude woman reclining with a rug, an intensely patterned rug behind her. And for me, uh, Kirchner's figures tend to be more, can I say, aggressively lined. Like Matisse's simple lines are have a soft quality mm-hmm. to them. And even though Kirchner simplifies figures as well, his has a more aggressive stroke somehow. And so with the pattern, the aggressive nude, even though it's a simplified figure, really works. In some of the Matisse pieces, I found the nude with its soft curves to be a disconnect from the intense patterning. I don't well, know it's why. It's almost anonymous. Anonymous person. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. That's something I'm going to have to noodle on. I, I think I'm going to have to go back a couple more times to see it, to think about it. Um, I think, obviously, the people you go with influence, how much you read influences. I do wonder if I should audio tour it or not. I did audio, oh, I did did. audio tour it. So yeah. sometimes, and did you find that useful? Some of it was useful. Uh, I particularly like, well, see, I don't like an audio tour that repeats for you what is on the placard. Agreed. That seems silly. So some of it was like that. But I like when they have, they tell you facts that you don't know, or they play music of the time or of the mood or something like that. They read a piece of literature or poetry that was floating around at that time that helps to fill in the picture. You know what I wish they would have had more of? They had a, they had a few around, which is a few of the large title cards for each of the rooms had a quote from Matisse. Yeah, something, I like that. Something relevant that he said. And I think when you're talking about an exhibit called Matisse in the studio. Yeah, you want to know what he's thinking. Yeah. What he's thinking. Why he's making those choices. I would have liked to have, and I know we've got so much paperwork on him. I would have liked to see excerpts of letters where he was talking about it. Some conversations you know he had with Picasso. They several times referenced, right? This painting Mm -hmm. was bought by Picasso. This painting was traded to Picasso. Like I would have liked to have heard some conversations or some thoughts that, you know, uh, other artists had about Matisse you know are there things that people are saying about this work are there I I don't know for me I felt like the exhibit was not about the art 
it was about the process in some ways, right? Many of these paintings are not Matisse's great paintings, but right. they're about you understanding where some of his work came from. So towards that end, I actually found, I thought it was kind of intellectually lazy that they didn't have more context then, that they didn't help you finish out that complete bubble of what, why these were important according to the things of the day or what he was thinking when he was creating them. Cause you know, these, these are people who wrote copious letters. Are you kidding me? And kept studio diaries and also who knew they were important while they were creating many artists toil in exile. But these are, these are men, you know, this Matisse was a man who knew he was famous. He knew mm -hmm. he was a master as he was doing it. Well, aren't we whiny babies? <laughs> I mean, it's not about being a whiny baby. I think it's about, an, like anything, I can say, you know, this is, I certainly would say it's an exhibit worth seeing. I'm not going to tell anybody, don't go, it's stupid. But I'm going to say it is not the exhibit I thought it was going to be. Then when I went back to see the exhibit that I now knew it was, it was not as great as I thought it could be. Is it still compelling? Yes. Is it still thought-provoking? Yes. I mean, to the point where after you went to the exhibit, you were like, hurry up and go again so we can talk about it because I can't, you know, because I mm -hmm. want to talk about it with you. And I think um, there was a quote I put recently on my blog from an artist, uh, Cortor, I think that was his name. Uh, and he said, you know, the point of his art, this is so badly paraphrased, but the point of his art is not about liking or hating. It's about getting someone to stop and look. Right. So we stopped and we so looked. So we stopped and we looked. And the curator of the exhibit made us think for a moment about this question of, I think it's an interesting question. I have always hated still lives. I've always thought they were boring. But the issue of objects as actors is, an, is a intriguing thought. Now we're talking about Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> well, I mean, that is the thing. When they anthropomorphize the chocolate pot, I was like, "We." I mean, when does it sing? Gaston! Yeah. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think everything is subjective, obviously. But I enjoyed it. I wish but there you had... Yeah. You won't remember it as one of the greatest exhibits you've ever seen. Whereas I won't. the huge Matisse retrospective that you saw like five times at MoMA. Oh my gosh. One of the greatest exhibits I've ever seen in my life. In your memory. And maybe that's part of the problem. Yeah. I think that is part of the problem. I mean, I will say that one of the things is, so I went, as I said, today during class at lunch to see this exhibit again. And I, I'm currently working on a painting, which is both, finished and unfinished. So my goal has been to, uh, I believe that work can look unfinished, but be resolved. That finished and resolved are two different things. Okay. So I am working on a painting that has an unfinished portion, but I'm trying to make the painting as a whole feel resolved. And by going to the exhibit at lunch, I mean, Matisse is kind of the master of it looks unfinished, but it's resolved. Like you don't walk up to his paintings and think, this isn't finished. You think, oh, what an interesting sketchy quality this has, or what a lively line, or what a, you know, cause they're resolved. 
And so I, I did spend some time, especially because these are less famous works. So in some ways they're, there's something about them that doesn't necessarily work for everyone. So they were good fodder for some noodling on that subject. But I think one of the things I love about art museums and about repeatedly going to art museums and seeing the same stuff over and over is that I think you take what you need from the exhibit in that moment. So today what I needed was some inspiration on the question of unfinished but resolved. And if I went another day, perhaps I would have questions on pattern and I would come out singing about, did you see all the times he used, you know, diamonds plus circles or, you know, anemone shapes or whatever it is. So I think, I don't know. I think I see art museums as a place, as an artist that is like, it's like a buffet and some days mm -hmm. you eat the chicken and some days you eat the, you know, pork and some days you go vegetarian. By the way, this is totally unrelated, but it makes me, I don't know why this made me think of it, but I went to the ice cream store today because of course it was a nice day. So went to get ice cream to the ice cream ice parlor cream, yeah. um, and there was a line of cones so it's like sugar cone, pretzel cone, cookie cone, and then the special vegan pine cone. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought that was pretty funny, and I wonder how many people actually asked for a pine cone. How does the ice cream stay in the pine cone? I was wondering that myself. Anyway, I'm pretty sure it's a joke. But I thought it was pretty good. Pretty funny. I don't know. Anything else you want to say on Matisse in the studio? No, I think we've pretty much revealed our horse. yeah, revealed our true feelings. prejudices there. There you go. Did you talk about did we talk about the uh quilting class that you took? We, I think we said that you were going to it, but yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think we, we talked, talked about, about it. it. So I took this quilting class with Frances Holiday Alford and she is a fascinating quilt maker. She makes these densely encrusted there is no other way to describe them, whether it's encrusted with stitch or beads or bottles or doll heads or, I mean, just encrusted. And most of her work is totemic, which is to say, uh, based on personal icons. Um, mm -hmm. And so there was a whole lot of stuff that I was... I'm not really a kumbaya -y kind of person. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that I was kind of rolling my eyes at a little bit. But I was, but like everything, it's all about attitude. So I was like, I'm going to embrace this and do it all the way. And you never know whether you like something until you do it. And the good news is, it turns out I liked it. Can uh, you talk about how, I think it was unusual. They started the class with tarot yeah, cards. Yeah, I'm, I'm about to say. So they did, uh. Uh, they did tarot, numerology, um feng shui zodiac and yantra um which are all these different interesting ways of talking about discovering who you are or how, ways that you should live your life and so 
they're also a curious combination of intellectual ideas and visual representations. And you, as the artist, can choose what you're interested in. Are you interested in the theory of the hermit tarot card? Or are you interested in the image of the hermit? Are you free associating with the word the hermit? Or are you doing some serious research into what that card stands for in true tarot, you know, worlds? Are you using the traditional tarot deck? Are you using the cats tarot deck? Cats? Yeah, they have a cats. They have all. They have a tarot deck for everything. There's unicorns. There's cats. There's Star Wars. There's whatever. So whatever floats your boat. Um, and the thing is, I think when we look for patterns, we find them. Yeah, I think where our brain is designed to fill in the blanks. So it was interesting to do like all these different things and then start to string together. Oh, this plus this plus this. And the thing that I loved about class, which I said to Francis at the end of class, is I said, I feel like what I've gotten is not, it's not the gift of like, hey, sew this to this. And here's a technique for, you know, stitching these fabrics together, which I think is a lot of sometimes what teaching is. The gift I got from this two-day class was here is a roadmap for creating personal work. Hmm. And that is exciting. You know, now I feel like I have a library of personal icons. We all do. That That is a bank that never runs out because I am ever evolving. Because the card that I pull from the tarot deck on this day has a different meaning even if I pulled that same card two years from now or two days from now. Because... Even though I'm always going to be born in the year of the dragon, you know, what a dragon means to me or the first thing that comes up when I Google dragon or whatever that is evolves as I evolve. So I love this notion of personal icons because you, in one sense, you never change, which is to say you are always you. But in the other sense, the little things around you always change. So I made this quilt. It's almost done called the passionate hermit. Hmm. Um, which is a combination of, I pulled the hermit tarot card. Um, Clearly. Yes. The yantra that I chose randomly based on just, I like the look of it is the passion yantra. Um, what is a yantra? A yantra is a visual mantra. And each of the symbols within each of the yantras represents things. It's basically like a visual map to help you understand hmm. it. And there's stuff like I learned that a triangle with the point up is a woman. The triangle with the point down is a man. So this yantra is made up of upside down and right side up triangles sort of all together and had all these reds and pinks and stuff in it. And then when I had my feng shui done, they were like, you need to use reds and oranges. And I was like, wow, that fits together. And then my numerology number ended up being a nine. And then the hermit card actually is a num the number nine card. And like this is what I mean. When you look for patterns, you find yeah. patterns, right? So it, it all sort of came together. The design for the quilt that I worked on it came out of my head so fast, so easy, didn't even have to try. I don't know if anybody else can tell. It's not, I, you know, 
I have long been interested in doing abstract work and I always have trouble with what am I saying with this? But this for me was a, I have no idea if anybody looking at that quilt has any idea what any of it means, but I can tell you what every inch, every color choice, every shape is intended to be. And yet I think it just looks like an abstract piece to anybody else. And that's, that's exciting. Though. Yeah, super that exciting. Wonderful. So I came home yeah. totally jazzed from these two days, just feeling like, feeling like I've been given a wonderful gift, um, which I hope to use for a long time. So yeah, that was a really good class. I, I think, I think I hope that in some way, whenever I take a class from a teacher who gives me a gift like this, I always think, I hope that in turn, I give the same thing to my students, which is not just a glue A to B, this is a good product, which is great. Don't, I'm not, I mean like those, that's great and I love that. But I hope I give a gift and the more I teach, the more I know I try hard to give these kind of bigger picture gifts. Let's talk about the philosophy behind this. Let's, let's say, you know, when you're home and in your studio and not in this class, where are you going to go with this? And that's when you really are thinking about some of the big ideas. I think that's the kind of teacher that I really want to be. And I think that's, I mean, that's part of the reason that like the class that I'm teaching right now online is, is it is about carving stamps, but it's not about carving stamps. It's about design. It's about a bigger picture idea. It's about empowering you to be able to not just like take, take somebody else's design and carve it, you know, carving is a really easy skill, but it's to be able to create your own magical designs and to have confidence in your ability to do that. You know, I think, I think that's part of what actually, now that I think about it, was frustrating me about this class I'm taking at the MFA is that I was like, what's the, what's the gift that this teacher is giving me? Where's the big picture idea? Well, it's only been two classes out of what, eight or 10? Something like that. So patience, grasshopper, patience. Exactly. I did notice in the photo you sent me that you had your bujo with you. Do you now always travel with your bujo? I your do. bullet journal? I have not and one of the things is I um I I did it I immediately was when I found out I was when I was was going to class, I dedicated two pages in my bujo to this class. And then I realized partway through that there wasn't going to be any instruction and I was like, well, now that I've already committed to it by writing in my index that pages 25 and 26 are acrylic expressionism, what am I going to do? And that's when I got an idea, which I think has been good so far, hard to know, it's only two sessions, to write down, I have it in front of me, and it says, like, things to think about. And there's a list of questions I wrote for myself. And so then when I came back a week later, which doesn't even seem that long, I was like, oh, yeah, that's where I wanted to go with this. Oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And then I wrote some thoughts about where I was right now. And I wrote down some thoughts based on having seen the Matisse thing. So now I think I'm actually going to have a nice little record of of what the gift is from this class. So maybe if it's not quite as obvious, 
Yeah. As that two day class with, um, you know, Francis was, maybe this will be one where I tease it out, you know, and at the end I say, oh, this is the gift. And that's one of the things, again, not, I know that uh, people are going to be like, Julie, you and your stupid bullet journal. I'm sick of your Bujo. Anyway, I'm sorry, you guys. <laughs> the Bujo is amazing. I'm a Bujo fan. I do, I'm like into like Bujo porn, you guys. Okay. So the thing about the Bujo that's amazing is it really is a tool. I'm already a list maker and a writer and a thinker and a journaler and all that kind of stuff. But this is it's just a great place for me to keep all of that stuff you know, in an easy format that I hope will be good to reference back to. Only time will tell. I mean, I, this is like, you know, day 20 in the Bujo. We can't really, we can't really. So call the it difference a between the way you use the Bujo and the way you use art journaling is. Yeah. So my Bujo is not artistic. I mean, there may be parts of it that are mildly attractive, rather, like little headers and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's not an art piece in any way it's lists it's shopping lists it's scheduling it's to do's it's notes it's plans um it's a place for me to be organized it is how i'm organizing my life it's more like it's more like a loosely woven planner than anything else my art journal is a place for me to explore art and then also to mind dump I don't mind dump to my wujo some people do in fact there's a huge community of people who say like one of their favorite things is like the journaling every day about stuff but for me you know my, that's where I do my art journal and like people are always like but what do you journal about when you write so much and if I read it to anybody you'd be so bored um, today I weighed myself and I gained a pound and I feel really upset about the fact that I gained a pound and it was probably the fact that I ate so late and maybe because it was salty or maybe, I mean, I went three points over, but they, I still have weekly points, so I think it's okay. And then I stubbed my toe and I just feel like the world is mean to me, but actually I'm super excited because I got this package in the mail and it's this cute little ruler that I ordered from Amazon and it's six inches and it's metal and I think it's going to be perfect. But then I was thinking, I mean, it's so boring. But it's just literally any stupid thought that's in my head goes into the journal. And what I find, the reason that the art journal works for me in that way is because I do just dump all my anxiety, all the stupid feelings that I have, all the terrible, unhappy, you know, blah. And then I also, it's a place for me to be like say things that would be so unattractive to say to another human being, like, I'm awesome. I'm the best at. I did this thing, and it was so good, and I'm so amazing, and everybody's so excited for me. And uh, and you're just like, oh, God, if you said that out loud to another person, they'd be like, what is wrong with you? Shut up. But I can say it in my journal, and nobody has to know, and I just flip the page, you know, and keep moving. Someday I'll find the page where it says, I hate my mother. I hate my mother. I hate my mother. That's so cute that 400 you only, times. That's so cute that you only think it's one page. Ah. Every day and then it's tear stained. <laughs> that's what I sound well, like. Well, if it's 
therapeutic for you, then it's a good place to go. There you go. No. So, and again, like, I don't think, I just like, I don't think my style of art journaling works for everybody. I don't think my style of boojoing works for everybody, but I, I don't think my style of doing the hundred day project works for everybody or my style of painting or my style of making faces or my style of blogging or my style of podcast or whatever it is. I think the point of so many things in life is you've got to find the lid for your pot. You've got to find the thing that works for you. And it's also, you've got to find, there are plenty of people who I don't create anything like them, but I love to look at their stuff and I find their lives inspiring, you know? And I think, there are plenty of people who create just like I do and I find their like Instagram feed depressing and upsetting or whatever it is. I think you need to follow the people that inspire you. You need to go towards the things that excite you. You need to stay away from the things that make you feel inadequate or bad. You, I mean, you is in the general you. I'm not talking to you, mom. Thank you. You're welcome. One, a human being, my personal mantra here is I always want to go towards things that make me feel excited and interested. Anything that makes me feel bad, defeated, negative, I am trying very hard to just unsubscribe, walk away, don't look at it. And that has been going pretty well so far because I feel like most of the time I'm just excited when I see stuff, you know. I'm excited when I hear stuff. I'm excited to make stuff. I actually stopped listening to this one podcast, which uh, is called StoryCorps, which is a wonderful podcast where people tell their stories. But there were so many horrific stories that I started to get really upset and really nervous before I would listen to it. Ugh. And I was yeah. like, and then afterwards I would feel terrible and I had like bad dreams about one of the stories because the thing is there are all these really true stories, but the most compelling ones are some of the most tragic and terrible. And there was one that just, I still can't get out of my head. It made me lose my mind and I finally had to unsubscribe. And now I'm going to tell you all about it so that you have to lose your mind, which is basically uh, the gist of it. The most terrible part is, is this woman was talking about her grandmother, I believe, who grew up, uh, had been born into slavery and then became free and at some point she the woman she worked with had thrown away some nail polish which she had found and she had painted her nails and when she went into the general store the white I can't remember if it was a man or a woman it might have been a man behind the counter was like where did you get that nail polish and she was like I found it in the trash and he was like ain't no anyway n-word who's allowed to use nail polish and he ripped out her nails with pliers no yeah I don't want to know yeah. this oh yeah. my god every single one all ten fingers do you oh know God. how un inhuman you have to be to do that? Can you imagine the pain? And can you imagine what kind of mindset you have to ha be in to allow somebody to do that to you? Can you imagine how, how much you, you have to work to get somebody's nails out of their body? I mean, just the whole thing. And here okay, this now you talk about it. I know. Me. I've destroyed you everybody. So I couldn't listen to this podcast anymore because it made me upset. And now people are going to say that about our podcast. Don't unsubscribe. I'm sorry. Oh God! I know. Anyway, it's like it's like a brain worm. You won't. Ever, and I heard this podcast like a year ago, and it won't go away. Thank you for sharing. I know. Yeah, I, I honestly had nightmares about it, and there was other stuff too that was terrible that I also won't tell you about. Don't tell us. <laughs> Don't tell us. Anyway, all of that is to say, go towards what makes you feel good. <laughs> well, you've ruined it with this. I know. Podcast. Okay, better. We we should get out of here, Ma. Anything else before we go? Not a thing, okay. except uh, I will see you tomorrow night. It's the second night of Passover. 
Your brother's coming. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. Big Passover celebration. Very few decorations this year, but I think that's okay. Anyway, uh, as always, you can find me at balsterdesigns.typepad.com and do leave us your comments or questions at balsterdesigns.com backslash arting. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast, A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Thanks so much for listening and subscribing. And we'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast. <laughs>